everyone and welcome to the first official episode of the Single Mother Survival Guide. So today I wanted to talk about something that really I think is really important for everybody but especially single mums and we're going to talk about wills. So today I've got Anna Leonard with me and Anna's a mum and she's also a lawyer with 14 years experience. She started her career in-house before moving to private practice in the commercial division and then diversifying into property law, family and estate laws, practicing in private firms before returning in-house with a building services engineer firm. And she's now got her own business. She's the founder and principal solicitor of Legal Hand, which focuses on wills, powers of attorney and estate matters and also legal matters for small businesses. And she's She's really passionate about helping people prepare in the case of adversity or death, protecting assets, minors, or other vulnerable dependents. And that's what she's come to talk about with me today. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for asking me, Julia. So I specifically wanted to talk to you about wills and power of attorneys today and why they're so important to have, especially as a single mum. I recently wrote a post about this on my blog, which you can find at www.singlemothersurvivalguide.com, and I called it the two most boring things you must do as a single mother. <laughs> Sorry if you don't take offence to that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, and I wrote about the importance of getting insurance policies and also the importance of getting a will done so that it's clear on who's going to be the guardian of your child in the event that you die and what you're leaving to whom and stuff like that. So do you think it's something that all single mums should have in place? I do. And I think everybody does, regardless of single mum parents or not, because these days most of us do actually have property or assets that we need to leave or um, pass on when we pass on. Yeah, that's true. So if a lot of single mums say, well, you know, I don't have any assets or something, so I don't need to do one, is it still something that people should do? You do. And you can draft them in a certain way that it doesn't mean that every time you acquire a new asset or you do actually get property that you'd have to change your will. So you can use generic terms, but really important that most people these days actually have superannuation and they forget about the superannuation and the life insurance part that that adds on to that policy. So the minimum that most people have would probably be at least 250,000 plus the super balance. And that's something that they need to consider. Now, many people say, oh, well, super has a binding nomination. It does, but unless you are very familiar with the trust deed for your super, there are the trustee itself has discretionary powers. And when you're dealing with minors, the trustee may look around to see what else and who else is in your family or in in your life and look to some other mechanism of that and when they're going to dispose that. Also, the other thing with trustees is that binding nominations have rules on them. Most of them ask you to update every three years. Now, nobody tells you that. You'll never get a notice. And so it's very important for people to check their super trustee and check that with their super fund. But as a fail safe, it's good then to also have your will because at the very least, a trustee will pay it into your estate. And then from your estate, which is covered from your will, that will follow then as to who gets the benefit. Right. So the difference between binding and non-binding is that binding is like if you say, this is where my money's going. There's no room for debate sort of about it afterwards. It depends. And it depends on the trustee because some of them may, if they feel there's a competing interest, say for example, that the person has got a new partner or they, you may be a single mother, but it's not 
clear whether you're actually divorced or your ex-spouse or partner is still in the picture. So they have to consider that there may be a competing claim between the children, the minor, and a partner. So in that case, it's very clear to then for a trustee to go, well, I'm going to follow the will. Yeah, right. And then they feel that they have absolved themselves and they've followed out their duties as well. Yeah, okay. So when you get a will done, you need to find an executor, don't you, to – I always think I'm going to say executor. <laughs> oh, but you need to find an executor to – and they, they basically – Manage the manage estate. Everything. So the reason it's called executor <laughs> – Executor. 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 Now you have me doing it. Is that they execute your wishes. Yeah. And that's the term. And you must understand that when it comes to estates and succession, we're dealing with very old law. So if you want to go all the way back to where our system, legal system comes from, from England, obviously we had the idea of the succession and entails and things passing to the firstborn son. So then when property wasn't entailed, there had to be a way to move it to other parties like subsequent children or daughters and so many of our terms and things that come in wills are, are quite archaic and old sounding which is why you have an executor so their duty is to uphold and execute your wishes now this person is very important especially if you have a minor child because they're the ones that are going to manage the money yeah that's right and when I when I did my will um, with you when I thought about who I wanted as an executor, I had like someone really clear in mind and it was really specific and I wanted someone who I trusted completely and had known for a really long time and someone who I knew for sure would be looking out for what was in my child's best interest and someone who was good with numbers and planning, maths, that sort of thing, Um, someone highly organized, someone that I knew would fight for what was in my child's best interest if it came to that and someone who has who had the sort of assertiveness to stand up to my ex if if that was required and to be firm and someone who knew that history with the ex and my relationship with him in the past and how it is now so that they sort of understand and someone who was young and therefore likely to still be alive when my child would be, you know, an adult. So how would is there anything that you would say to someone to keep in mind when choosing an executor? I would. So they don't have to be an accountant or a professional or anything like that when it comes to managing money. But I like to say, and as you and I discussed, Julia, people have money personalities. Mm. And when you're dealing with a minor, let's say we've got a six-year-old and they, you're going to put on it that they can inherit the money with no holes barred, like basically giving them the cash at a certain age. And we talked about different ages about that, whether it's 18, 21 or 25. So when you pass away, your executor at the time is the person who executes the wishes of the will um, and carries out, looks after the estate, um, sorts out um, funeral expenses, um, looks after security, security security for the assets. But once that role has passed, the executor then turns into a trustee. So they are then the trustee for those funds until that minor beneficiary becomes of age and inherits. So that person then has to act, and which is very strong under the law, they have to act in the best interest. They're not allowed to mix the money with their own. Um, and there's certain things and powers that they have and duties and obligations. So it is important to pick somebody who you believe would know what was the best for your child and what kind of 
because the will allows them to use that money for their benefit advancement and well-being, you also want somebody who's not going to hold on to the purse strings and allow your child um, to allow your child to have some a bit of fun if you like to call it and we talked about I like to describe it as um, when your child turns 18 um, your trustee knows that you would probably have liked to have given them a sum of money to go on a holiday mm. um, or if your child's at school and the opportunity came up for this amazing excursion to Italy to go and look at the old masters in France and your child was very artistic that your executive or trustee now would say you know what that's something that mum would have really liked to happen so I'm going to advance that money yeah your child might say that they want to have a month in Ibiza and party and the trustee might say well that's really cool and mum liked a party but let's just keep that to two weeks in Fiji instead and so there's kind of those decisions and we want to have somebody that doesn't tie up the funds to a point that it leads to a ludicrous situation. And like you said as well, if it's too strict, um, you don't know what's going to happen. And if if your child ends up sort of in an accident and becomes a paraplegic or something, if it's so strict and then they can't have access to funds that will help them with medical treatment or whatever. It's- exactly. Or and, and, and the law for that is... Um, is detailed as well in various regulations as I did have an incident where we did have a child that had special needs and unfortunately that there's a list of registered medical equipment that are allowed to be applied in the strictest sense that they could use the funds. So I used to draft, I drafted that will to be wider so that this child needed a special bed and it wasn't on the list of approved equipment and therefore a trustee's hands would be tied. So I prefer to say that when we draft it, I give wider powers to the trustee to be able to say we can per- I can use the money for that yeah um, and that's what we talked about about having that person who really has a lot of common sense yeah. and I think they've got to be rational reasonable people but they've got to know you very well and the wishes of what life you wanted for your child yeah and I think it's a good idea like what you said to me when you did mine was to write up sort of a document just sort of giving examples of what what you would be okay with, what you wouldn't be okay with and that sort of thing. And it's more of a guide rather than a... Oh, the... Some people call it a memorandum of wishes. I Really, it's not any sort of formal document. It can be a diary. It can be a journal. But I think when you do have minor children and if you are a single parent, that it's a good idea to jot down things. And it could be even just your hopes and dreams for the child, things that you might like um, for your daughter or son, whether it is a trip overseas or being able to go to a certain school. Um, We talked about wanting the child to go to a particular school. And if there's a problem with a former partner and things like that, the trustee doesn't necessarily have to pay this money directly to whoever's looking after the child. And I know we're going to get on to guardians in a minute but the trustee can make the decision to pay that money directly to a school or buy the uniforms or or whatever it is and so therefore the money doesn't have to go directly to the partner or ex-partner to know that the money is going to be applied for the child. Yeah which is a great way of doing it it just gives you that sort of peace of mind I think well it does for me anyway Um, and I specifically chose a non-family member as because of just the relationship history with my ex and my family. And I thought that it was just going to be easier for everybody. Um, But in general, do you think it's best to choose someone who's a family member? I 
I really don't say that you can be that black and white about it. The thing is, when it comes to wills and things, I do hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, my friend said this and that. And the thing is with anything like this, it's very individual to your family and your circumstances. So, I, you know, I've had clients who've picked someone that doesn't live in Australia and there's no issue because the person they're the closest to happens to live in Germany and that's not a problem like it's not and certainly not these days with um you know the internet and Skype and things like that you know it makes it easier Mm. to communicate certainly and so there wouldn't be a delay like in the old days you'd have to send things over by snail mail to get signed and come back again so of course they, they you know those days have passed um so I think it's very much dependent on your individual circumstances. Okay, cool. So let's move on to guardianship. Um, Now, if you have separated from your partner and um, you pass away and that father is still living, would that father be automatically granted as the sort of guardianship of the child despite even if they're sort of not in the child's life at all, for example? (laughs) Yes, and the reason is that by the right of the birth and naming them on the birth certificate or whether it's been proved by a, a DNA test or a court order, that other partner, that former partner, is a parent. And so therefore they are a guardian of that child regardless. And the only time that that will be upset, if you like to use that term, is if there's a court order in place stating that they're unfit and they're not to have any contact whatsoever with the child. And as we know, those cases are really quite rare because under the rights of the child that it the right is to know both parents. And yes, sadly, there's parents that don't avail themselves of those rights or people that just aren't aren't good parents and for many reasons are not exactly in the child's life. Um, But a child is not property and therefore we can't write in our will who we're going to gift it to. What we can do is state our wishes. When there's been a long separation or a time without it, other people could apply to the guardianship tribunal to be the guardian of the child. And then there can be a contention about who's going to look after the child and look if if you are uh, a single parent and the um, father or mother of the child is no longer living then even amongst family members or friends there can still be arguments over who's going to look after the child yeah. and back again the guardianship tribunal is going to look at who's the best for the child and what's in the best interest of the child and yes unfortunately in most cases unless there's some you know exemplary circumstances it will be the child's other parent Hmm. that's why I think as well it's so important to have a will so you can have a guardian put like you know what's the word like not allocate but you know you're stating your wishes stating your wishes and if you're in a situation where um you know, you're, you're a single mum by choice, for example, and if you've just sperm donor and there is no father, um, and then you might think in your mind, oh, I really want my mum to be the guardian of my child, but maybe your sister, if, if you didn't have anything in place, there might be an argument and then your sister's like, no, why would, why would she do it? I would do it. At least it's very clear on what you want for your child. Yes, and the tribunal will look at what the wishes were. 
and the circumstances at the time. And in that case that you just gave, Julie, is a great one. So you make your will today and your child, Jane, we'll call it, is five. Um, Nothing happens and 10 years pass and unfortunately something happens and this child is now 15. So again, well, they actually can make up and um, they're, they're at an ability at that age to be able to state their wishes as well, to take in consideration. But 10 years has passed and your mother is now not as well. She's got problems with mobility. And so then when the sister comes forward, the tribunal can say, well, you know, it was 10 years ago that Julia nominated mum. But a lot of things have changed since then. Mum's not so well and the sister is now living, you know, next to a school, very set up, um, has the time and space in her life. And the tribunal will say that it's actually probably best interest for Jane to go with the sister. So it's again, and I'm sure many of your um, followers would know what happens in family court about all the various factors that everybody looks at and they all come into play as well. Yeah. It's... um. It's kind of a hard situation because I think, especially if you don't have a uh, a father for your child in the picture who's quite actively involved, it's sort of quite scary to think about what would happen if you died. And I know that when you did my will, you were telling me about ruling from the grave and I just <laughs> <laughs> sucks uh, because I had a really clear vision on how on, on how, for example, the trust would be. Uh, used, you know, if I were to die for my daughter and I had really specific conditions that I wanted. So, you know, my ex would only be allocated money to help with her raising if certain things were to happen. Like if, you know, she went to the school that I wanted or the type of school that I wanted, or, you know, he ensured that there was still contact with um, my family. And, um, but you can't rule from the grave, unfortunately, can you? So what's the best, what would you say is the best way well, I guess we sort of talked about it before with the um, just having a sort of a guideline or wishes. But um, when you're setting up a trust, how what's the best way to set it up so that your wishes and hopes will be fulfilled well, without ruling? From I know. Grave? Yeah. So you can't put all these conditions on because what can happen is we don't know what's going to happen. And if you've tied the money up in certain ways with these conditions on it, it could end up in a situation, as we talked about, which will disadvantage your child and not be what you really wanted. So I think that's why the memorandum of wishes is a really good idea because you set down the things that you wanted, like the school. Like you said, one of the things is that you wanted on her 21st birthday to be given a a lump sum of money. You wanted to make sure that if she went to university, she didn't have to scrimp and scrape, save and not have money to enjoy it and be able to study without worrying about you know, how she was going to pay rent and living yeah, on two-minute noodles and boiled rice. Yeah. So they're the kind of things that you tell your trustee because she might not go to university. Yeah. So if you'd put that money on in that condition, but she hadn't gone to university, but she ended up being a, I don't know, a dancer or something and she had an opportunity to study in New York, you know, you would have wanted that money to be able to help her study. Yeah. So I think I think that's why it's very good to have that memorandum or the diary or journal or letter, but it also comes back to the person that you pick to be the executor. Yeah. Because they're going to be the trustee and they're going to be involved in your child's life, not just managing financially managing the money. I mean, they're going to have an accountant to help them out because as we talked about, these can be sizable funds now. When you talk about superannuation, life insurance, mm. they you can be talking about close to a million dollars or if not more. Mm. Um 
One thing I want to say when it comes to parenting is that sometimes when you are a single mother and there's an ex-partner and they aren't actively involved, people can change. Yeah. And people can change when there's something like a death. So sometimes people will surprise us and I'm sure your audience will go, nope, nope, he's not (laughs) going to. There's no way they're going to change. But they could. And and people who uh, aren't parents when children are young – Sometimes when things happen, they can have – it is a life-altering event mm. and they can turn around and go, I want to be a parent. And, yeah. you know, we can all hope that that does happen. Or they want to be and they are a parent in the sake that – in the thought that, you know what, I'm not going to be the best person to look after Jane. I'm just not. So I'm going to do the right thing and sign over and, and complete forms so – the sister or whoever else you've picked mm. does become that parent for that child. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's the best we can hope for. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to go back to something you mentioned before about um, a child being old enough to decide where they want to – who they want to live with or who they want to hmm. be their guardian. Is what, is there a sort of clear cut-off age? No, or? no. And, and for many of your people who have ever gone through any of the family court and conciliation and um, the conferences and things like that, it really, again, depends on the individual child. So many people will say, oh, they're 14, they can know their way. But then again, you can have a nine-year-old who's very mature mm. who really – knows what's going on and is quite clear in what they feel is best for them. So again, individual specific circumstances. When it comes to families, which is, you know, family court areas and family that and wills and estates, everybody is different because we are all individual and your child is an individual person. So they can often have a say and usually there are conferences and mediation where the person who is trained will talk to the child in question and they'll make a a, come to a conclusion as to they think of whether or not the child is mature enough or is being influenced or is unhappy or what is best yeah right Mm -hmm. so quite similar to family court areas. Um, And one thing I did want to mention is that if you do have family court orders in place between two parents, when one parent passes away, the family court orders are then gone as well. Wow. Because there's nobody else in the agreement when you think about it. So it's between Bob and Mary. Mary's not there anymore. So therefore the order's That's kind of scary. Like what if court orders are in place that sort of state that the father only have supervised visits or something? That's a very different situation. I'm sorry, I should have said except for those extenuating circumstances where the court has ruled supervision, um, harm or no contact whatsoever. So that's – that's and that's again, remember, that's a very rare circumstance. Yeah. so let's talk. We're just talking generally, where you have the standard orders in of between yeah. sharing time or weekends and holidays and things yeah. like that. Yes. Okay. Cool. Um, now, if you didn't have a will, um, what would happen to your children or um, your assets? So I guess with the just child, it would be standard go to the father. If it was a single mother by choice, would it be? the family decides sort, sort, sort of thing or? 
Okay, so so somebody did actually ask me this. So if something did happen, the immediate thing would be to pop the child into care. So we all know that there's emergency carers around. Now, this is in the case of say there's an accident and the child's left at childcare. So the first thing that would happen would putting that child in emergency care while they sought for family. Yeah. And to be honest, if your child's left at childcare and you're not answering your mobile, they're ringing everybody on your yeah. contact list. Yeah. So your child's not going to be left standing on a street or left at home for any length of time. That usually doesn't happen. As I said, if they can't get onto any immediate next of kin or family like grandparents or a friend or whoever your emergency contact in, then they will step in and put that child Um, place that child in with an emergency foster carer until they can locate the family members next of kin and things like that. So the child will always be cared for. Um, Sorry, what was the second part? It's such a morbid topic. I know. It's Uh, (laughs) it's horrible to think about. Um, In your assets, like so. So your assets. So if if you pass away without a will, then we're looking at intestacy. And there's set out rules in law that looks at that. So they'll look to see if there's a spouse or a partner, then to children, then to next of kin. Um, so it'll be either parents, if the parents aren't away, uh, alive, they'll look for siblings, half siblings. So you go through quite a lot until if there's absolutely nobody left, so no child, nobody left, then it goes to the government. So this is something that was worrying me because – with my life insurance policies and my superannuation and that sort of thing, what, like, if I didn't have a will done, then automatically that would be given to my daughter's father to manage for her, but he would be in control of it, right? Yes, he could be. If you didn't have a will, then the minor's guardian would possibly be the person that's picked unless there's a dispute and then they could appoint somebody from the Office of Protective Commissioner, which is a government department, so they can take control as well. So in that case, the family, your remaining family could say, no, no, no. Um, And to be honest, I haven't seen this happen. I've seen it happen when there's nobody listed, but the OPC can actually come in and take the funds and manage it. Now, the issue with that is that if they do that, they provide for the necessities of life, not Mm. the fun, not the luxuries. So I do have a case where um, somebody was in a nasty car accident and unfortunately they didn't pass away, but they had significant assets in their name and left a wife and children. And the Office of Protective Commission did step in and they became their the the financial manager and there was things like they'd always wanted to send their children to the Catholic private school and the OPC said well that's not necessary so they didn't give the money so they control Mm, it it is it is there's a government body and I can't think of it now at the top of my head but it's kind of like that if you can't if you don't have a family member or a close friend or someone you feel comfortable asking to be your executor the public trustee the public trustee Mm. that's it and I was reading up about it but it's the same sort of thing. If they don't sort of agree with what you wrote, they can just override it and it's quite – They of- also charge and people go, it's, oh, it's such yeah. and such percentage. And I'm saying, but why would you want money being paid to somebody, to yeah. a government department yeah. that doesn't necessarily have to be? And if you're talking a million dollars, 5% is a lot of money. Yeah, for sure. 
Um, so people do talk about that because the public trustee offers free wills. Yes. And there's a reason they offer free wills. Mm. Because to be honest, how much does it cost for me to do a will? $150, $200? That's not a lot of money. No. But you take 5% on a million dollar estate and you're doing everybody's free wills. Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) And especially because I think if you do the will, um, I think you have to pick them to be the executor. Yes, you do. Yeah. So, so that that's again really the ideal. money that's taken out of your estate rather than going to your child. Yeah. And it's just I think even the thought that it's out of your hands completely and that there's no one who knows you and your child hmm. making decisions like they've hmm. got the final say. Exactly. Um, let's move on to power of attorney. Can you tell me what exactly a power of attorney is? Okay, so your will comes into place when you pass away and you've got an executor. A power of attorney means that I actually give somebody power to step in my shoes and do certain transactions as if it was me in a financial way. So I can nominate you to be my attorney and I can instruct you. And many people do, many companies do this because obviously a company isn't a person that can sign on the dotted line. Mm. So a company... Um, can appoint an attorney to act on its behalf and sign. And as a person, as a legal entity, as you are, you can appoint someone to act on your behalf as well. So with the power of attorney, I might be going overseas and I might be in the middle of certain property transactions. So I'll appoint you and say, I want you to do this, this and this while I'm away. You can operate my bank accounts. You can sell my house. You can buy property. So a power of attorney is someone who would do that if you were alive or dead? Or Only alive. alive. So Once you pass then, away, the attorney, the power um, ceases to exist and then the will. The executor steps in. Steps in, yes. Okay, so what's what's the difference between a power of attorney and an enduring power of attorney? Good question. So a power of attorney, I need to instruct you. Yep. Okay, so you can only act on my instructions. With an enduring power of attorney, it endures in the case of I've got mental incapacity. So if I'm in an accident, a coma, or in some sort of state where I can't act in my financial affairs, you therefore can act without me having to instruct you. So this is a really good um, document to put in place in cases I told you about that that poor father that was in a car accident and was left in a coma. Um, I've also seen it happen, um, a very sad story where quite a young lady, she was only 32, when she was giving birth, she had a bleed on the brain and she ended up in a nursing home. And unfortunately, her husband was a little bit stuck because both joint names on a mortgage and a brand new newborn baby to look after and he couldn't sell or do anything with the house and the mortgage because it was in both names, even if it was joint. So he had to apply to the tribunal to get orders to appoint him as the manager or the Office of Protective Commission, and an urgent hearing took eight months. Oh, my God. So it's quite good. It's... I think people need to put it in place. Again, because it acts straight away, you've got to very much trust the person that you're going to nominate because they can automatically from the day it's signed or you can pick various options as to when it's going to come into effect, they can act in your state so they can operate your bank accounts. And you advised me to have the same person to, to be the executor and the enduring power of attorney. For Is that so that um, 
in case I was incapacitated and then I died, it would just be sort of an easy It can over. be, but it was because of the person you'd chosen. Right. And because that you had that close bond with the person who knew your wishes, then it makes sense yeah. to use that as the same person because you have to trust them. Yeah. Now, like a trustee, an attorney is under strict legal obligations about what they can and can't do with your money. They can't benefit unless no. you specifically let them and they can't even buy gifts for it. So, remember, yeah, we had to, to pick s- on the form yeah. that we'd let your attorney buy gifts for your daughter Yeah. because that money has to be used for you. Yeah. So, we have to make sure that we put in place that you can actually buy and pay for the welfare and living expenses of your daughter as well. Yeah. Because otherwise that money gets locked down. Mm. Now, an enduring power of attorney, they just do financial matters, don't they? They don't they talk do. about um, med- medical decisions or anything Medical like decisions. That. So that's where you talk about, people talk about putting a guardianship in place for yourself. Is that an enduring guardian? Yes, it is. Okay. Now, we, there is the Guardianship Act and under that, automatically your parents and your next of kin and your spouse or partner would be in the role of that guardian. But if you're in the circumstances where perhaps everybody lives overseas or perhaps unfortunately you don't have any next of kin still living, it's a good idea to put an enduring guardianship in place and that would be someone who'd be able to consent to medical treatment on your behalf. Interesting enough, when you can't consent, you can't even have a flu vaccination or a haircut. (laughs) so look it's quite rare but I've done this more for elderly people when they've as they put it in their words they've outlived everybody yeah right or their family nobody lives in Australia or is close by that could help out should something happen and they be in hospital now we all know that if there's an emergency in a car accident that the doctors and hospitals can act straight away in an emergency situation so that's okay but it's what happens after yeah Life support or life support decisions, um, organ donation decisions. And again, if you were in that state, things like flu vaccinations, um, not experimental treatment, so don't worry about that. (laughs) There's very much a very specific legislation about using experimental drugs and treatment on people who can't consent. And this is important because it might be something that would be of great benefit for whatever illness or um, disability that you have at the time but that's that's a little bit separate so they're not going to um, your guardian isn't somebody that can ask them to start experimenting and testing on you yeah okay that's good um, now I just wanted to ask you going back to wills if how often I mean is the will something that you, sh- you should review every year or are there certain times in your life that you should rewrite it or once you do it that's it no no it's definitely something that you need to put on your list and the way that I draft which as I was taught to was that we try and leave it as generic in a way that it will fit all your you know different circumstances buying and selling property so that's why we don't nominate a house at a certain address or a certain car or even furniture we might sometimes do specific gifts on special jewelry and that's about it or artwork that's that's very sentimental um, but we need to change we need to always revisit it when we have life-altering events or life events such as more children um, marriage will automatically revoke any previous will 
And I suppose that becomes quite important for a single parent because if you remarry and then have more children, it's kind of it sort of complicates everything, doesn't it? It does. Not because the children, because I usually say my children, yeah, and not name them, yeah, and but the marriage itself actually automatically revokes a will, yeah. So therefore, you would have to redo it then. You. If you have your executor and a backup executor, um, if the first executor passes away or becomes incapacitated, you wouldn't need to necessarily update it, but you might want to rethink. Mm. Um, if you had, if your child passed away with you, we like to put in backup beneficiaries. Yeah. So we like to think of who else is in, if, if there wasn't you, wasn't your child, who else is there? That's a good thing to mention actually, because you could be in a car accident and pass away at the same time as your child. We all travel together. We're all on buses, trains, planes all the time. So it's always good to think about a backup. And you might think of family members. Mm. You might not not like any of them. (laughs) (laughs) Or you might think that they're pretty well established. So you might jump a generation. You might think of nieces and nephews. You might think of a charity. Um, So it's always good to do that. And I like to have that backup. I think that you should consider it like you do anything in your life. Every five to ten years, have a look. Do I need to change it? Has anything changed in my life? No. Um, as your daughter or child, son, um, sorry, daughter or son ages, you might rethink the age of majority that you've picked that they are going to inherit. Yeah. So you might have picked 21 and you might be looking at them at when they're 19 going, yeah, no, nah. <laughs> no, no, no. You're going to be 35 before you get a time or, or the opposite. Yeah. You might have picked 25 and you might be looking at them going, wow, they're this, you know, amazing person at 21 and you might you might decide to change it. I mean, 21 to 25, four years, maybe yeah. not. So things like that. Yes. Yeah. It, it's You said earlier it's such a morbid topic and <laughs> nobody talks about it and I find that so bizarre. Yeah. Because it's been it- so much of my life. Yeah. <laughs> even with losing a lot of my family members as well. Um that we talk about all these, you know, personal things. Like we talk about fertility, we talk about IVF struggles like that, mm. but we don't talk about something that we know is so certain and That's death true. is certain. It is. And, I mean, it's it's as morbid as it is, it's, um, it's really important and it's just something that I think a lot of people don't want to think about because it's sort of too horrible to think about. But once you have it in place mm. – um, it's just a bit of a relief. Do you remember when I asked you to do mine? I suddenly got in this panic. I was like, we need to get it done straight away. What if I die like today, this afternoon? <laughs> yes, you did well. <laughs> you did have that accident with your foot. Yeah. So it's probably the first thing. I think the other thing that's really important, we've been talking about guardianships and what we want for the child, our children, um, what we want to have happen. We didn't really talk about our body either. Mm. So, um, as there's no property in children, there is no property in your body. Yeah. The executor is the only person has the power, which is quite limited, to dispose of your remains, which sounds a bit clinical. So, it's often if you've got some really definite ideas about being cremated, burial at sea, anything like that, you do put your wishes down in your will as well. Um, and again, they're wishes. Um, but generally an executor will carry them out unless they're quite bizarre or too expensive or difficult to do like repatriating bodies overseas and things like that yeah. um, but it's it's a good dis- 
thing to have. You need to have this discussion with your family. Yeah. So when we talk about what we'd like at our funeral or memorial or if you don't want anything, what we want to happen with our children, what you want to happen with the with your assets, with your funds and, and your hopes and dreams for the future, it's a discussion you need to have now. Not let them read a will no. and find out. Because I completely agree. People go very strange after because there's a lot of anger, shock, grief and the conversation has to happen now. It has to happen but like it's the same thing as before, people don't want to talk about it and I know when I broached it with my family, they were like, Julia, why? Well, we don't need to talk about this, like you're not plant, you're not dying so who cares, you know, <laughs> we'll just, don't worry about it, just live your life and you know, we'll sort it out after you die if that happens and I was like, no, <laughs> I know what I want, I want to talk about this now because you just never know. Yeah, and I think it is and I think it's a time like sit down, grab a bottle of red or whatever, mm. sit down with your family and say, look, you know, it's a hard conversation to have but you know, we all have hard conversations yeah. in our lives and say, this is something that's actually going to happen. Yeah. And it might not happen tomorrow and it might not happen for 30 years yeah. or 50 years. But I'd like you to know my wishes yeah. because it is something personal to you. Yeah, exactly. And it also stops arguments and... Oh, how many people have arguments? Like, oh, I've heard of so many family situations where someone dies and it's just complete chaos and hostility and family relationships are over it's just awful it's so important just to have everything it is and and sadly you know I know brothers that fought over a you know black and white 40 centimeter tv and things like that because I think it's a time when somebody does pass away that old issues raise their head and as I said anger grief Mm -hmm. and 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 the loss and Mm -hmm. it does bring out sometimes the worst worst in people people. but I want to say that sometimes it brings out the best in people and considering your audience is our mums just to think about that that try and think about the best of people that are going to come out yeah um and they're going to be there for your child because you have put all the arrangements in place yeah okay we might leave it there um is there anything else you wanted to that thought might be worth mentioning or no, I think we've pretty much covered it. Um, wills, going and getting your will drawn up doesn't have to be a really complicated um, matter. It's more about, and the way that I operate, as you know, Julia, is getting to know you, having a chat. I send a, a pretty brief questionnaire out for people to have a think about certain things. And then we have a chat about who's who in the zoo, yeah. who's around, yeah. what do you want? And from then, you know, we can draft and do via email and yeah. telephone because everybody's busy. Yeah. And I know you're you're based in Sydney. Are you are you able to help people remotely over the telephone? I can. Or? Yes, I do. And I've just completed one in Melbourne. Oh, nice. That's awesome. friends who just had another baby. So they have four. Yeah. Awesome. And then you just work out with the signing with a JP or something? or Well, signing a will is easy because it just needs to be someone that's not anyway remotely going to be a beneficiary. Right. Um, powers of attorney are a bit different. They do need an officer of the court or a solicitor and things like that. But there's lots around and we can yeah. always work around that. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, if, if you're okay with it, we might just put your details in the show notes as well so That'd people be can great. contact you. Um, I know that when I got my will done, I rang up 
I rang about 15 people and some had been recommended and some, you know, I just found myself and I was astonished with the um, price difference, which ranged from about $100 to (laughs) $6,000. But it doesn't need to be that expensive, does it? I think a couple of hundred. People are getting excited about this estate planning Um, and and to be honest, yes, it has its place, but you have to have – quite a lot of property you've mm. got to look at family especially in farming there's a lot of family trusts and things like that set up so then it does make it quite complicated because nobody owns anything and I would I hesitate in putting in those structures mm. for people with normal means mm. because you're going to spend a lot of money every year with accountants and lawyers and the tax man sorting it out. Yeah, it doesn't need to be that complicated. It doesn't need to be that complicated. But the $6,000 of the full-on estate planning. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. Well, we might leave it there. Thank you so much for coming and talking Hi. with me today. Well, thank you for asking me, Julia. <laughs> Not a problem. Okay. Thanks for listening to this first episode of the Single Mother Survival Guide. And uh, don't forget to rate us in iTunes if you have a spare 30 seconds. And write a review if you like.